You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. I'm delighted today to be joined by John O'Quick, a close friend and long-standing colleague. Thanks so much, Jono, for being with us today. Thank you, Steve. Good to be with you. Jono is the author of The End of Epidemics, a major piece of work that came out in 2018 that drew very heavily on the experiences, recent experiences of Ebola and, and other outbreaks of recent vintage, but also was a, was a pretty deep dive looking back over the last century. We're going to talk about that in a moment. He was from 2004 to 2017, When we first got to know one another quite well, he was the president and CEO of Management Sciences for Health, MSH, a major provider and implementer and an intellectual leader in the field of global health. He also was a founding chairman of the Global Health Council and served in that role for six years. Currently, as of the end of March of this year, uh, he joined the Rockefeller Foundation and he became the managing director there for Pandemic Response, Preparedness and Prevention a very timely appointment, and as we'll get into in the course of this discussion, um, an area where Rockefeller Foundation has really taken off and taken the charge moving forward a number of things. So thank you. Let's go back, Jono, and start with this earlier work that you began uh, that culminated in the end of epidemics, and you've put some recent updated content into the later editions of that work. Let's start by asking you, as you as you took this dive into looking at the last century of pandemics and what has been the pattern of response and what have been the the revelations, but also the, the factors that account for the complacency and the difficulties of preparedness, what did this tell you? Well, the, the inspiration for the end of epidemics actually came in the middle of, of Ebola, where after... <laughs> Three months of delay at all levels, uh, the world finally woke up, and then there was this huge outpouring of support. And and I stepped back and asked myself, where will we be in three years? And I feared we'd be in the same place that we've been with a lot of other epidemics and pandemics, which is we get into this peak of, of panic when the outbreak, when the pandemic hits, and then we descend into this valley of complacency and, and neglect where it's just, you know, our attention shifts. And that's what, that's what led me to do this, uh, deep dive in, into the last hundred years. And I mean, I was just re- struck by how repeatedly we had been slow to act and then under investing in preparing f- for the next one. This is something that, of, of course, the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security, this has been a central preoccupation there. In your view, what, what is it that accounts for this pattern, for this enduring chronic pattern of a cycle of complacency and neglect? The core of it is the economics and politics of now. So what happens, uh, I mean, a classic example is the problems we've had responding actually didn't start in January three years ago. In this country, it's been going on for 20 years in the sense that after 9-11, we created a huge public health emergency response budget 
billion dollar budget. Back then, it was a lot of money. And as we got away from from 9-11, that started going down. That was the fund that was meant to fund preparedness, state level. Then when we had the uh, avi- the bird flu scare in the mid-90s, uh, it went back up again for a little bit. Then we had the financial recession of 2008, and we through the CDC and, and also WHO, we de-staffed and defunded our, our public health response. To the level of about 30% staff and budgets cut. Yeah, yeah. We in, Over a six-year period, we lost over 45,000 public health workers. So you say, why, you know, why weren't we uh, like fast off the mark? It's because we de- defunded it. And, you know, one of the problems is voters don't reward prevention. They'll hammer a leader who is perceived to have missed responding to a disaster, but we don't keep on that steady investment. In the end of epidemics, we lay out seven critical actions, the seventh of which is advocacy and engage public to make sure that the first six actions, which are around a whole variety of things, including investment and innovation. So so that's really critical. Now, one thing, John, one thing that has come forward in the COVID experiences, certain countries in Asia that did go through a very searing historical experience with SARS, with MERS, did turn the corner and convert to a long-term strategic approach to health security preparedness. That's true in South Korea. It's true in Taiwan. It's true in Hong Kong, Singapore. And you can make the similar case on China itself. We haven't had, and most of most other countries of the world have not had a pandemic strike with that level of force and, and power and just searing trauma that shakes the system and forces this kind of long-term strategic approach. So now that COVID has come upon us and is a much longer haul than anyone had originally thought and is having such profound and pervasive cascading impacts, are we in that searing experience? And are we now going to be different, do you believe? That's that's the key question. Will we remember? And what, what, I, what I say to people, and I get that, that's a question I've gotten a lot in different interviews. Remember this moment. Remember what happened to your parents, your grandparents. Remember what happened to schools. Remember what happened to your ability to travel. Remember what happened to your ideal vacation and all. And I think that's what we have to do. Uh, but we also have to be sure that the people are understanding the, the, the current pandemic. We still have uh, this combination of pandemic denial, pandemic fatigue, and in some cases, pandemic anger. Describe more about, I understand the denial, I understand the fatigue, and we're going to talk about what a deeply divided country are we are with two completely different concepts of what this virus really means. Tell me more about that pandemic anger term. Well, the pandemic anger um, is what follows from the, the pandemic denial. It's it's like you're telling me I'm a young 21-year-old, life is due, I want to go out, I want to party, I want to go to bars, I don't want my liberty to be infringed. I mean, the Declaration of Independence says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not the pursuit of happiness above everything else, and not liberty above life. And I think 
we have an intergenerational gap, uh, we have a racial gap, and in, in some ways we have an income gap where people are experiencing COVID in a very different way, depending on where they sit. And so I think if we really harvest the collective experience and really come to grips with how much it is is particularly hit the the most vulnerable and this isn't new in 1918 in the pandemic fourfold difference for fatality rates among cities in the US 50% of that was attributable to, to three things air pollution poverty and pre-pandemic health status which is tied up with racial inequalities and all so um I think we really need to grasp the the lessons and the risks we're no less likely today to have the fourth coronavirus that goes deadly coronavirus to go global after SARS MERS and, and and COVID we're no less likely today than we were yesterday or a year ago we we need to grasp that reality well, I do think you're onto something in saying that, okay, we're a very deeply divided society and this, this pandemic has aggravated all the disparities, has exploited and worsened the disparities, the inequities that we have in our society. And we're not alone. It's happening elsewhere in the world. And it's fed this alienation and anger. And then we, I mean, what the Kaiser Family Foundation and Pew are showing is a hardening of very different understandings of the basic science surrounding this and that you have kind of two nations within the United States with two completely different set of ideas, very much divided along partisan lines, but not entirely, but very different sources of information to verify what they believe is true in terms of, is this a serious threat? Do we take it seriously? Do we have to use masks? Do we have to social distance or is that exaggerated, et cetera, et cetera. And if we're talking about how we internalize the lessons from this COVID pandemic and choose to remember and make a bigger commitment over the long term, we got to deal with that. We got to deal with that division. And how are we going to remember? Do you think we should be making a priority, for instance, of a 9-11 style commission that as a national enterprise, an independent, highly, highly esteemed effort? What do you think of that? Well, I think we, I think we should. I think it'll, it'll be just like 9-11 and the commission after the 2008, which can, in both cases, it, it concluded these were knowable, potentially catastrophic events and there was, there was lapses in response. And John Barry, who wrote the, the famous, the iconic book about the 1918 flu, was asked whether he thought this would change us. And he said, I don't think so. But but I think here's the thing. The key thing is to keep the awareness. So, for example, the UK has a, a national catastrophic risk report that they do every year, that they look at the movement of global warming. They look at pandemics and they look at practical things at all, all levels. And I think that's one of the key things is to have mechanisms that keep the threats that we're facing on the consciousness and also building pandemic literacy from the school on up. So, so people understand the risk because your mind works differently in the middle of an emergency. And you, so I think those are a couple of the measures that would help us to have the kind of mindset that, w that would keep us investing and developing the way we need to. 
Well, when you look back on the 9-11 Commission, I mean, we were a pretty divided country in some respects. In other respects, we were pretty unified. It was an external threat. It wasn't an internal threat. But they chose leaders who were very respected on a bipartisan basis. Tom Kane, Lee Hamilton. They chose Phil Zellico as, as the head of the secretary, a very respected, competent personality. They, they were able to control their membership and their communications and to really make a major contribution in defining what does this moment mean for us as a country and what's going to have to change. And some major changes happened as a result of that. Yes, and that's the thing. And the reality is that we feel like we haven't responded as well to COVID as we might have, which is true, but it's also a really, really tough virus. But we are so much, we responded so much better than we would have five years ago. There, there has been a lot that's happened. And some of that have been things that made it possible for us to move so quickly on the vaccine side. Some of the key coordinators, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, I mean, they didn't exist five years ago. They've been really key. I agree that there has been a transparency and an openness that cuts across industry, regulatory agencies, foundations, research institutes that didn't exist before. Some of that is what makes it possible for SEPTI to do its job so well. But there was a moment, a moment of reckoning that came out of Ebola in terms of the need to collaborate in a different fashion in accelerating vaccines and diagnostics and therapies for these dangerous pathogens. And we're seeing that bear out now, which is, which is so encouraging. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you're, what you're doing at the Rockefeller Foundation. We just last week, and we talked yesterday in the interview with your boss, uh, Dr. Raj Shaw, about the rollout of this billion-dollar three-year plan focused both on energy poverty and on critical gaps and disparities on access to COVID vaccines, therapies, diagnostics, but also primary healthcare system strengthening in itself. Let's start a little bit before that. You arrive in March working with Dr. Shaw, and the foundation gets very active at pulling together the U.S. National Action Plan on Test and Trace. Puts $100 million behind this effort. It sees a void in our country in the middle of a crisis, right? It sees a abdication of responsibility at the national level to make Test and Trace a top-line priority, and it decides, okay, here's the moment. We better jump in. Somebody's got to move, and it's going to be a diverse set of expertise, partnerships, around this and we need a strategy and we need to figure out what the essential top line tasks have to be. And I have to say, it's just looking back, it's in watching this unfold, it was quite impressive. And the foundation played a very catalytic role uh, and it's and it's delivered some results. I mean, 10 state consortium, the, the commitments on mass distribution of antigen tests. Tell us a bit about, I mean, you were in the boiler room, you were helping put the pieces together and think about this. How did this unfold and how did it work? Well, interestingly, it started with a conversation between the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Romer and our president Raj Shah. 
And this conversation started in, in March where it was really clear that this was taking off and really clear that we weren't moving on, on testing and all. So um, they started it with a Wall Street Journal op-ed that basically said testing's the way out. We've got to know where this virus is and be able to catch those that, that are infected. So we got together uh, initially about two dozen experts for a roundtable, people from academia, from economics, from ethics. And, and basically put the best minds together and then did a series of convenings and said, okay, look, we're at a half a million tests a week now. We really need to get to 30 million tests a week. And that was basically a best guess at what it would take. And, and we said, this will go in two phases. Between April and June, we're going to unleash the power of and the potential of the classic lab-based tests. And so that's going to be an expansion of the current system. But then to get from that would be five million tests a week in June to the 30 million we thought we needed by the end of the year, that was going to be a technology leap. And we we weren't, truth be told, we weren't sure how that would go. I mean, fast forward, we, we got to the five million tests a week by the middle of June. And uh, we're, we're now up to uh, now about 30 million tests a week. We're doing about 7 million tests a week. And but at the rate that we're going, we have mapped the test availability in, in the country. And we do have the, the capacity to really get uh, multiples of that by the end of the year. You responded to this void by you kept your kept your lines open to talking to Brett Garrar at HHS. It's not like you ignored the, Absolutely. the national government. No, no, no. It was bipartisan and and reaching yeah. to the federal government. But you also were enlisting the governors. You were enlisting the industry. Yes. The the, the test. Yes, companies. absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, we had we had a um, roundtable with the CEOs of several of the companies to to talk with them. Um, we have now then. In this, over the last couple of months, as we've looked to the fall, done interviews, usually conversations involving the CEOs and if not their their senior leadership, to get a sense of what the capacity is. And the key thing is this fundamental paradigm shift between the lab-based uh, PCR test, as we call them, that requires sending a sample off to a lab and waiting to the point of care rapid tests. And and this was something in July, we issued our second report on the importance of rapid, convenient, low-cost, frequent point of care testing for screening purposes. This is the assurance testing strategy. Yeah, basically. Screening. Yeah. And you accept the fact that you may have high high false negatives or false positives, but you just... You're rolling out in order to know where the virus is. Yeah, yes. And the fact and the reality is, and, and this is this has been mapped out, that that fast and frequent beats slow and slightly more precise in terms of epidemic control. So that's the whole idea is because forty percent are asymptomatic, um, and you've got people in a pre-symptomatic one doing it frequently, getting getting those people isolated, tracing the contacts is really critical, especially in schools, nursing homes, prisons, juvenile homes, all of these congregate facilities where that, that can be the tinder 
that's what you need these sort of the um, mostly antigen, but also some point of care uh, PCR test. That that's a critical critical step, and um, and and so that we're in this process of this major paradigm shift. What's what's critical now? It's a new technology. People need to understand it. I mean, point of care testing is not new. We know pregnancy tests from the pharmacy. But it's, it's getting the public health community comfortable with new tests, getting the procurement up and going, and then making sure they get paid for it. And, and that's, a, that's a critical factor. And that's basically a, uh, an investment that's needed from the federal government to be sure that the American public can, can be safe. You know, one thing I want to raise, I mean, maybe six weeks ago, I was talking with authorities here in the District of Columbia who are managing the testing approach and also trying to manage the reopening of the schools in a safe and effective way. And federal government had, had delivered a quantity of the new antigen tests. And they were puzzling over how do you introduce these into school communities where what if you have... 20 or 30% false positives or false negatives, you you can get yourself into quite a difficult stop, go, stop, go and confusing sort of situation. How do you manage that? And then also, how do you track when you have this mass distribution of these, how do you capture what you're learning in terms of the data, the responses and the data? And so talk to those two problems. I know that schools where you put a big focus on piloting in a number of schools and number of states on how to use these effectively. What did you learn about this problem of you? You don't want to create panic in your parents, parenting community and the like, and you can't go stop, go stop, go, because then people will lose confidence in this. It's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah, yeah, it is tricky. And it, and it is, I mean, this, this we are, as a country, we're embarked on the largest testing and contact tracing endeavor in, in probably, in U.S. history, probably human history. So there's going to be a learning part of it. We need to understand in a pandemic, you got to start doing things, sharing experience. So we, we've done that in, in a couple of ways. One is early in the process, we established a testing solutions group, which is now Two dozen cities from Boston to Honolulu and, and Detroit to Miami um, who are sharing experience and cross learnings, sharing the questions they have, sharing the answers they have. And, and that's really critical. And so that's been one part of it. The other in, in New Orleans, Los Angeles, Louisville and parts of Rhode Island, we're working with the schools through Duke Margolis, um, our great partner there, Mark McClellan, uh, and we're working to get that information. And it's actually a little trickier than it seems because there's a sensitivity about being experimented on, which it isn't. It's collecting data about what we're actually doing. But at the same time, they want the tests to know how the level of, of infectivity in, in, the, uh, in the school. Um, and I want to go back to the point about 20 or 30 percent false negatives. The reality is the companies are smart. They know what the comp competitive factors are, and they know that accuracy is one of the competitive factors. So we see that tests are getting more accurate. And the other thing is what we're really looking for, this is in essence a transmissibility test. That is, do you have enough virus that you're, you're, you're transmitting? And from that point of view, the evidence is that they, they're, they're much more accurate for 
that decision. You're trying to get a window into asymptomatic transmission. You're trying to get a. You're exactly. trying to illuminate exactly. what we can't see. Right, and the whole thing is yes, and the whole thing is what used used well. We're probably going to pick up nine out of ten. It won't be ten out of ten, but it won't be five out of ten. We're probably going to pick up eight or nine out of ten. That's eight or nine out of ten, which we right. wouldn't get if we didn't have these screening right. tests. Right. So, tell me now. You've accomplished all of these things, and they're ongoing. They're moving. They're expanding. You're you're getting more and more states bought into this effort. You're learning an enormous amount. Now you've had the rollout of this billion dollar initiative with two prongs: a energy poverty prong, microgrid, solar microgrid emphasis, very much rooted in the sort of the experience that the foundations had in India, uh, with four hundred thousand community, four hundred thousand folks who've been brought into this into this game plan then the then the uh, action platform around the health requirements on covid-19 on testing vaccine diagnostics health system strengthening and the like how does what's happened up to now in this what you've just described how does that now fit into this bigger initiative that that's been announced the first part of it is continuing with equitable scaling and tracing programs so really, both in the U.S. and internationally, in in a number of countries in Africa and, and in India, we're investing in local efforts to take advantage of this paradigm shift in testing and to really have those tests deployed in a way where you're able to, to really track the outbreak in the most vulnerable communities. So is it fair to say, Jono, that you've taken what you've learned in this U.S. effort and you're expanding that into low-income and lower-middle-income settings? Actually, it's been a cross-learning, but yes, yes. And one of the key things is this peer-to-peer -peer sharing of things. So, yeah, it, but we, we, from the get-go, we also were working and getting things going globally. So to support the global uh, equivalent of what we have here, RADx is the National Institute of Health effort to expand testing, and we've been working with them, and we're all, so we're investing in the global program to do that, something called the ACT Accelerator, um, and also at the country levels. So it, it's really building on that momentum. I know this is evolving, and not all of the parts have been fully defined yet on the on the health side so what can we anticipate here in the coming in the coming months what will the new the new pieces look like or what should we be stay tuned to expect a b or c so one of the critical drivers in rockefeller foundation's uh, engagement in the health sector is this idea of precision public health that is, if you have the, the data and use it well, visualize well so people can understand it and act on it, that's a critical driver. So with this precision public health concept, we're actually looking in the pandemic area, we're looking at the first 100 days. And if you look at it, the first 100 days of an outbreak basically are determinant. And because that's when the virus is taking off, you want to get the signal as early as possible, a few weeks matter. And to give you a sense of the difference of catching an outbreak in 100 days versus 200, several years ago, the Bill Gates did a scenario on a flu-like pandemic. And in 100 days, there'd be about 750,000 deaths. Um, 
worldwide. In 200 days left unchecked, it would be 33 million deaths. That's the order of magnitude. So we're looking at what is the data that is needed to make the best responses early on. And, you know, one of the striking things is that if you look at why we've had so much trouble with COVID, it's not been the basic epidemiology data and all. It's been the lack of, of the, the people data about vulnerability, response. And I think that's where bringing together the best data, bringing together multiple data sources and, and really being able to evaluate that and, and model that in a way where decision makers early on, whether it has to do with flights patterns, just a simple thing is the alertness. If you look at how outbreaks are found, it's always an astute frontline health worker who says something different's going on. That's what happened in 2008 when a WHO person, Carlos Urbani, went out to, to look at SARS and he said, this isn't flu, it's something else. It happened in Ebola when MSF Joanne Liu said, look, this is a different outbreak from before and, and you got to act. And it happened the same thing in China with, with COVID, Dr. Wenbao. Uh, I mean, so what we need to do is get that signal and to be able to, to magnify it and then send out the alert. So the outbreak in northern Italy that was their first break there. That was a Chinese couple that was resident in a nice part of northern Italy, went to China, came back. The emergency room doc had no idea that this was a risk. Exact same situation as we had with Ebola in Texas and with, with MERS in, in South Korea. There was a movement of a pathogenic virus that was potentially knowable, and the alerts could have been there, not to predict it's going to land in this city, but to say, be aware. So the whole idea of, of bringing together the data that would help in those first 100 days of response and um, with a credible, independent, transparent mechanism that provides a kind of a professional judgment around whether this is this is an outbreak you should worry about, and then gets that communication so that the vigilist is raised and an action can be taken. It's interesting how much this theme around quick quality data as a decision communicated to policymakers in a clear and intelligible way, how much that theme is now central, not just to the work of the foundation, but it's central to the Trinity Challenge that Dame Sally Davies has launched. It's elemental to the work of the Council on Foreign Relations. Tom Boyke and Stuart Patrick just completed a very, a really excellent task force report that was, you know, done from between July and October. They did a great job. And that, this whole question around creating new coalitions, new networks around data and surveillance. This has emerged as one of the dominant themes in this period and as people digest what COVID has taught us. Right. And, and the power of that, just as an example, in the last 50 years, we have reduced weather-related deaths by 95%, even though we've got, we've got more of those events. And I wouldn't have said this six months or a year ago, but now seeing how everything's unfolded, 
I believe that a big data approach to pandemics and getting the, the right data and tracking the different outbreaks historically and looking at the patterns, I think we have the potential. That's the core of, of what we're talking about with this pandemic platform is really a precision health approach to looking at the patterns. I mean, we're not going to stop coronaviruses from jumping from bats to pangolins or, or civets and into humans. That's going to happen. But what we can do is have an awareness, an alertness, and a, a reporting mechanism that will let us, first of all, see it, but then have the data to start having much more rapid responses. I want to shift a little bit and ask you to reflect on the power and the position of philanthropies today in this world of COVID. We see an enormous amount of creativity and energy and dynamism and risk-taking, fast movement. If you look at the Wellcome Trust, you look at Rockefeller Foundation, you look at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, it's a big moment. It's a big moment in time. It's a in which these are very visible. It's a very visible phenomenon in which policy entrepreneurialism and new ideas are being pushed forward from philanthropies. What's behind all this? How do you, how do you sort this out and explain this? And what does this mean? Well, I mean, these are all organizations whose mission is to make the world a, a healthier, more sustainable, fairer place. And, and, and that's their goal. And they have the resources to, to pursue that goal. I think all of us have seen in different ways that this is a hopefully once in a century opportunity in the sense that there is a significant threat to humanity that has raised people's awareness and that for which we have a number of different opportunities to innovate, to scale up things that we have, to communicate and to try to affect uh, human behavior, <laughs> things like as simple as, as masking and taking vaccines. And so I think it's it's a recognition. They're not political. I mean, in their own lives, they, they may be conservatives, they may be liberals, but the point is, they have a, a mission and they have tools that are data-based, evidence-based, and, and they see the opportunity, they see the need in the threat to humanity and the opportunity to, to really make a contribution which, which really will have enduring impact in making the world a safer, fairer, more sustainable place. Thank you. And obviously the combination, it's interesting, the sort of combination of a mission of social justice, addressing these gross inequities that have come forward, a commitment to technology and the use, the better use of ideas and technology to find some solutions, and the need to forge par partnerships and move fast. In other words, to be catalytic. They've got capital and they've got speed and ability to pivot and move, but they also are able to sort of forge these, these coalitions. They are able to bond together to create CEPI. They're able to bond together to, to stand up the act ACT accelerator. They're able to bond together to launch this sort of initiative that you just launched, that the Rockefeller Foundation just launched. Let's close on two points. One, there, there are two sides of the coin. From where you sit right now, we're in the, we're in the middle of a pandemic that's longer and deeper and more dangerous than what we thought it was the case just a few months ago. Here in the United States, we're heading into a surge, looking very dangerous. 
Uh, we've had to adjust our thinking around how we manage all of this. And as we talked about earlier, we're very deeply divided as a country. What worries you the most? What are you most worried about today when you think about where we are, the multiple cascading crises that we face, the uncertainty around the future? What is it that worries you the most right now? Well, if you look at COVID, the, the, the thing that we have now is to protect this is basically human behavior. Our decisions to use a mask or not, our decisions to wash hands or not, our decisions to distance or not, our, our decisions to go into crowded places. And so w- what worries me is it's self-interest. It's individual self-interest. It's humans who, who are, you know, just doing what they want to do. And this rich, poor gap that's hitting poor communities more and communities, higher income keep, people can insulate themselves. Um, it's hitting in younger people can go out. And re- the result of that is you get a wave of youth and then it goes to the middle ages and then it gets to the older ages. So I, I think that's what worries me if, if we aren't able to build the intergeneration, interracial, um, intereconomic solidarity across income group solidarity. Solidarity in a positive sense of, you know, we are one humanity and, and it's really um, treating everyone as our neighbor and, and thinking of it that way. So, so that's what worries me if we can't pull ourselves out of this individual self-interest, because in the long run, it's the collective interest that is going to serve everybody. It, 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 will, it will serve everybody and make a much better place to live if, if we think more collectively. So let's close then on the question of what gives you the greatest optimism and the greatest hope amidst this turbulence and this dark and dangerous period right now. I think it's it's the ingenuity. It's the human ingenuity and creativity. I really believe that if, if a year ago today you had described to the vaccines experts what actually exists now, that we just in this country, we have two vaccines that are through phase three ready to go, another two that are just back on track after a lapse, that, that we'd have 16 vaccines already in, in the later stages. If you had described that, and, and factories built before the vaccine was done, if you had described that a year ago, people would have said, nah, no way. Uh, most people would have, I think. So I think it's the human ingenuity. Um, I think it's ingenuity around things like, you know, the sports companies starting to do s- with sports friendly masks and all. Um, I, I do think it's, it's also in folks looking at the impact of just low cost, higher quality filters now that we know that it's also aerosol. Um, transmitted. So I, I think it's the human ingenuity of how to adapt. Darwin didn't say survival of the smartest or strongest. He said survival of the most adaptable. And and I think that's really what give what gives me hope in, in the creativity. And if we and if we don't keep psychologically fighting the virus and saying, I wish it weren't here, and say, how can I adapt my life? How is we can we as a company uh, come up with new products that help folks through this? And it's happening all the time. And I, I think that's what's going to get us through the next few years. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for the time you've given us today and and this rich discussion and ending on a very uplifting moment. And thanks for all your leadership and service, John, um, over many decades. Well, thank you, Steve. You've been at it for quite a while, too, <laughs> making a contribution to the thoughts of all of us. So really appreciate it. Great. Thank you.